1 Thessalonians chapter 2, this morning we are looking at verses 13 through 16. This is God's word, please give it your full attention. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins." But wrath has come upon them at last. The Battle of Bull Run was the first skirmish in the American Civil War. It took place about 25 miles southwest of Washington, D.C. At that point, at the beginning of the war, the leaders in Washington, including President Lincoln, were pushing the military to drive south to Richmond to take over the newly crowned capital of the Confederate States to put a quick end to the war. So President Lincoln enlisted volunteers to serve in the Union Army and they signed up for a 90-day enlistment, 90 days, because they thought that this would be a very quick and relatively bloodless war. Well, as the Union Army marched south to go to battle and to meet the enemy, the Confederate armies that were, at the, uh, were stationed there at Bull Run, they were followed by a large group of spectators, believe it or not. These spectators were politicians from Washington, D.C. They were journalists. They were rich socialites who followed the armies down to, do, to watch this first battle like a bunch of spectators. They brought picnic baskets and blankets so that they could watch the battle like it was some big sporting event. Both the armies were inexperienced and untrained at this stage in the war, but under Stonewall Jackson, much to the great surprise of the northern leaders, the Confederate armies were able to win the battle and drive the Union soldiers back towards Washington. And as the Union soldiers retreated, the spectators with their picnic baskets and blankets were caught up in the retreat, and they're all in terrified, uh, in, in great terror and frightfulness. They were running from what the uh, Confederate soldiers that were following the Union soldiers. These events showed how unprepared the northern armies and the nor northern people were, as well as the southern armies and the southern people were, for the great war that they were about to fight. In that battle alone, 3,700 soldiers died. And the war itself would take four years and over 700,000 soldiers would die on both sides. Just as those Americans were naive and unprepared for the great war that they were about to fight, 
So today I believe the American church is naive and unprepared for the great war that it is already in the midst of. This is a war that's been going on since the beginning. This old war came to earth when Adam and Eve, the first created human beings, rebelled against their creator and joined forces with Satan the tempter. And God in his grace, instead of squashing that rebellion at that very moment and putting an end to humanity, in his grace, he spoke to his enemy, Satan, and he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It is by God's grace that humanity's rebellion against their creator and their judge has not resulted immediately in total, absolute defeat and eternal wrath and condemnation. In God's grace, he allowed humanity to go on. And in God's grace, he put enmity between the woman and the serpent, between the church of the Old and New Testaments and Satan and the forces of darkness. It's an act of grace that this war has gone on from the beginning. And in Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes the Christian life in terms of going to war. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all to stand firm. He's not talking about some rare exceptional leaders in the church. He's talking about all believers need to see their lives of discipleship in terms of this great spiritual conflict, this war that's been going on since the beginning. And I believe it's one of the great travesties of the modern church is that we've pushed aside the book of Revelation. We've treated it as something is too complicated to understand, something that's not worthy of our time. Whereas the book of Revelation was given to the church to make us constantly aware that this spiritual war is going on. And we ignore the big picture that the book of Revelation tries to give us of the war to our great peril. In chapter 2, verse 16 of Revelation, Jesus speaks about the false teachers that are in, inside and outside the church. And he says, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. In chapter 12, verse 17, chapter 12 is, is a beautiful, if you just read the whole chapter, I'd recommend it to you this afternoon in your devotional time, read chapter 12. It's a glorious picture of this war that's been going on since the time of the Old Testament all the way through until Christ comes again. And it says in chapter, chapter 12, verse 17, Then the dragon, which is the symbol of Satan and his forces of darkness, then the dragon became furious with the woman who represented the, the church of the Old Testament or the nation of Israel. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, the church, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. In chapter 13, verse 7, the beast representing Satan's forces on earth, the earthly human forces that serve Satan. The beast, what says, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. 
And then at the end of the book, you get the great victory that comes at the end of time when it says in chapter 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This life, you can't understand this earthly life unless you understand this basic conflict that is behind all other conflicts. This spiritual war lies at the root of all the great conflicts of history. History books will describe the wars of mankind in terms of nations and rulers and armies and lands gained and lands lost. But the real conflict is as it always has been between King Jesus and his kingdom and the kingdom of darkness. And it is my firm belief that the church in America has been sheltered and lulled into a false sense of security in the midst of the war. We are unprepared to fight. We hear about spiritual conflict and we think, oh, that's nice. It grabs us picnic baskets and blankets and go watch. We're not prepared because of bad theology. We're not prepared because of infighting within the church. And we're not prepared because we have compromised with the enemy and accepted the enemy's values and ways. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the world, on the front lines of the battle, our brothers and sisters in Christ are losing their possessions, they're losing their jobs, they're being raped, they're being beaten, they're being tortured, and they're being put to death because of their loyalty to King Jesus Christ. As we come to this passage in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, we see Paul commending a new, young developing church that was on the front lines of the battle. A church that was being persecuted both by the Jews and by the Gentiles. Paul has just received a report from his associate Timothy that indicates yes the church is thriving but at the same time it is facing fierce opposition from its enemies. And you'll notice here that Paul purposefully places their suffering for the faith in Jesus Christ in the context of this larger war between the church and the world. He says in verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. He points back to the church in Jerusalem, to the sufferings that we see in the book of Acts. That from the very beginning, from the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost, it was under attack. And yet, also from the first day of Pentecost, they were on the attack as well. From the day of Pentecost on, they were given a mission. They were sent into the world to bring the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to advance the front. And really the book of Acts is that story of the wonderful victories in the midst of great suffering that the church was able to accomplish as it advanced to the edges of the Roman Empire. When we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we didn't realize we were signing up for war, did we? It was an enlistment. But that is the reality. The fallen, unredeemed world that is still in rebellion against God and against his son, Jesus Christ, hates the church. And if you don't realize that, you're not prepared to go to battle. 
In John chapter 15, verse 19, our Lord Jesus Christ says to the church, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, it's not just my opinion. Christ has told the church to expect the world to hate you. Now, of course, only a small percentage of those outside the church, those who are unbelievers, only a small percentage will openly acknowledge their hatred of the church. Most of them aren't aware that that's what drives their actions, their beliefs, their practices. But that is the reality. That that hatred of God, that hatred of Jesus Christ, that hatred of the church is instilled in the nature with which we are all born. Yes, we all too once were enemies. And so I think what this passage does is begin to point us to why. It helps us to prepare for battle to understand why does the world hate the church. Any opposition you've ever faced, and it has been light comparatively in this country and in this culture. Any opposition you faced has often, I'm sure, made, left you wondering, well, why do they hate me? Why do they hate what I believe? Why do they hate what I do? Well, in his words of encouragement to the suffering Thessalonian Christians, Paul alludes to three reasons why the, for the world's hostility towards them. The first one is this. He says, the world hates the church because we've been given the truth. What divides God's friends from God's enemies is the truth of God's word. Look at verse 13. Paul begins by making a profound claim regarding the message that he and Silas had brought to the, these new believers in Thessalonica, that which led to their changing sides in the war from being enemies to being friends of God. He says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That's a very profound statement that Paul makes. Not only is the Old Testament the word of God, but the apostles representing Jesus Christ were sent by Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the word of God with the same power and authority as the Old Testament prophets. And that's what established the church, was the word of God being received and believed and accepted as the very word of God. Paul didn't come to them with another religion. He didn't come to them with another worldly philosophy or another worldview. He didn't come to them to give them another ethnic or value system. He came to them with the very word of God. And it was to be accepted as absolute universal truth by which all other claims to truth are to be measured. And that's been the heart. That's been the front line of the war from the very beginning. Because when Satan attacked Eve, what was it that he attacked? He attacked the word of God and her trust in the word of God. Her trust in the authority of the word of God. He said, has God said, or as the ESV translate, did God actually say? He knew that if he could get Adam and Eve to question God's word, then he had them. And that's what happened. Or as Pilate, as he stood before the very word of God himself, Jesus Christ, 
Pilate said cynically, what is truth? As though it cannot be had or known. Questioning, challenging, rejecting the truth that Jesus had brought himself from God the Father. In the history of mankind, there's always been two strategies Two strategies that our enemy has used when the enemy has been in control of the state, which has been almost continuously. Two strategies. The first strategy is to silence the church by oppression, imprisonment, or execution. Or strategy number two, which has been far more effective, is to offer a devilish compromise. You can have your truth. You can practice your faith as long as you keep it private And as long as you acknowledge the state is the final word and the final authority in all things. Back in the days of Paul, in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was kind of unique among world empires in the sense that it didn't take strategy one. It didn't try to squelch all other religions and philosophies and impose the Roman religion and philosophy on the people that it conquered. That's what all other earlier empires had done, but the Roman Empire was different. They said, no, you can go ahead and worship your own gods. Have your own religion. As long as you will pledge that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. Caesar has the final word. He's the one who determines the final reality, the final morality, the final word in all things. A devilish compromise. The call of a Christian is to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's been that from the very beginning. Before the world to say with boldness, Jesus Christ is Lord. And to live accordingly and to accept any suffering that comes as a result of it. And to do it for his glory. When you proclaim that Jesus is Lord... You are saying his word is the final word on all matters. There are many out there today who will blame all the conflicts of mankind on religion. That they will blame the great wars of mankind on this irrational nature that mankind has, these claims to exclusive truth. And they'll say there will never be peace on earth until we squash Religious exclusivity. Jesus, listen to the words of Jesus according to Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And we see it all over the place. We see it in our own families. Enemies within our own households because we have those who reject Christ as Lord and those who serve Christ as Lord. And that will be the reality until Christ comes again to put away all his enemies. The only peace that counts is peace with God. And the only way to receive peace with God is to Have your sins forgiven through the crucifixion and resurrection of God's Son, His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And so, 
as we say Jesus is Lord, we are making him the final authority and his word the absolute last word on all issues of faith and life. The world hates the church because the church has been given the truth. The second reason that Paul says the world hates the church is because the world hates Jesus Christ personally. Verses 14 and 15, Paul speaks of the hatred that drove the unbelieving Jews of his day to murder Jesus Christ. He says, the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. The Jewish nation, speaking of them as a whole, he says they killed, they murdered, they executed Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Redeemer, the very creator of all mankind. They murdered him and they have murdered his prophets who spoke for him and they are driven out and murdering the apostles who spoke for him. Now, I have to be very careful talking about this because the question, who killed Jesus, has been a very controversial question throughout history. And when you say, as Paul says here, the Jews killed Jesus Christ, that has been misinterpreted and abused and twisted and distorted to justify all kinds of oppression and persecution and violence against the ethnic Jewish people throughout history. And people in the name of the church have done it more often than not. But it's a gross misunderstanding of what Paul is saying here. Depending on definitions, you can say a lot of different people actually murdered Jesus Christ. Judas was the one who betrayed him. So in a very real sense, Judas, his own disciple, murdered Christ. The Jewish Sanhedrin was the body of Jewish leadership that was driven to put Jesus on the cross. And so in a very real sense, they are the ones who murdered him. Herod murdered him by his own inaction and deferment. Pilate murdered him because he was the one who pronounced the final word. The crowd of the Jews, this massive mob of the Jews that stood before Pilate, who cried out, crucify him, in a very real sense, were responsible for the murder of Christ. But in a more ultimate sense, you and I, who have been bought with his blood, who have been redeemed, who have been born again, who have been saved by the shed blood of Christ on the cross, we are the ones who murdered him. It was our sin that put him there. And in an ultimate sense, it was God the Father who put him there. God the Father sent his son to be killed so that you and I could be saved. But Paul, in that context, Paul is speaking here of the Jews as a corporate body. Not just Judas, not just the Sanhedrin, not just the mob that was there that day in the presence of Pilate who cried out, crucify him. He's saying the Jews as a corporate body, as a political body, as a as a as a the church of the Old Testament, they are the ones who rejected Christ and ultimately put him on the cross. As John chapter 1 says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The nation of Israel had the privilege of being the church of the Old Testament, God's people, but they as a body rejected their Messiah, they rejected their Redeemer, and so God rejected them as a body. 
in my devotions over the past couple of months, I've been reading through that long section of the major prophets and the minor prophets. And over and over again, it drives home the message that God was about to judge his people because they had rejected him. Not every individual, of course not. There were many faithful followers of the coming Messiah among that era of Old Testament church in Israel. But as a whole, they rejected their Messiah. And they were doing it long before he actually came. And they were rebelling and they were serving other gods. And God says, your cup is filling up. The cup of wrath that the Old Testament talks about, it's filling up. And Paul makes an allusion to it here. It's been filling up to the point where they absolutely rejected their king and their Messiah by putting him on the cross in an effort to destroy him. And so the cup was now full, Paul says. The wrath is coming upon them. The rejection was about to be final. That's what he's alluding to. In verse 16, he says, but wrath has come upon them at last. You see, this isn't about modern Israel, the modern nation of Israel. It's not about the Jews in the 11th century or the 12th century. We're talking about the Jews of the Old Testament, the Jews of the day of Christ, who rejected him. And God turned from the nation of Israel and from that nation, he brought a remnant of true believers and began to establish an international church that would spread to the four corners of the earth. And so while the rejection of the Jewish nation would hit its culmination in 70 AD when the Roman troops destroyed Jerusalem, the church has gone on to take the gospel, to take up the sword of the truth of the word of God, and to fight for the kingdom of light. Since then, individual Jews have been, have been saved. Paul himself was one of the worst enemies of the church. But God in his grace saved Paul. Throughout Paul's ministry, he went to the synagogue first because God was still calling people who were ethnically Jew, a Jew to come to faith in Christ. And it continued through the first century up until today. Praise God, there are still Jewish people coming to accept Christ as their true Messiah. And I think that's what Romans 11 is talking about, that God has not forgotten the Jewish people because he's still calling out a faithful remnant from their midst even to this day. But since the first century, the nation of Israel has given up its right to be called the church of God. Since the first century, the people who are ethnically Jewish or politically Jewish, those people are in the same category as Americans or Canadians or Africans or Europeans who reject Jesus Christ as the King and the Messiah. As long as they reject Christ, they remain under his wrath and they are his enemies. The hatred that we see in the leaders of the Jewish people in the first century is the same hatred that is in the heart of all people who don't love Jesus Christ today. When you read the, the, the accounts in the Gospels of how they hated Christ and sought to murder him, understand that that is not qualitatively different than the, everybody who rejects Christ today. It's the same hatred. It isn't just an intellectual, theoretical hatred. It's personal they hate Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because they hate God. 
For most people, it's not a conscious hatred of Christ. Matter of fact, I hear many people these days say, oh, I like Jesus Christ, I just can't stand his followers. I think you need to ask those people, well, who do you think Jesus Christ is? Is he the Jesus Christ of the scriptures or the one of your own imagination? Is he the Jesus Christ of the scriptures or is he the one that the culture has created in opposition to what the scriptures teach about who he was and what he said and what he did? Are you talking about the Jesus Christ who's the creator of all things? The judge of the heart and actions of all mankind? The only redeemer, the only one through whom we can come to God and be at peace with God? Is it that Jesus Christ that you like? I seriously doubt it. And I base it on the words of Christ himself. John chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus says, If the world hates you, speaking to the church, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The reason that the world hates the church is because we're beginning to look like Jesus Christ, we're beginning to talk like Jesus Christ, we're beginning to think like Jesus Christ, and they hate Jesus at the core of their being. The third reason that Paul alludes to in this passage is that the world hates the church because of the mission that we've been given. Verses 15 and 16, Paul says, the unbelieving Jews disbelieve God, displease God, and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said after his resurrection when he met with the leaders of the church as he was about to ascend to the right hand of the God the Father in heaven. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am Lord. I am the final word. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. The world hates our Lord Jesus Christ. The world hates us because we follow Christ, and it will passionately resist our efforts to make more disciples of Jesus Christ. It only makes sense. Remember how Jesus condemned the Jewish leadership of his day in Matthew 23 when he said, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. But history has proven over and over again, the more our enemies try to destroy the movement that is driven by the message of God, the more powerful the testimony and the message of the church becomes. As they have always said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We're studying Reformation history in our adult Sunday school class. And one of the things that you'll be seeing as we continue through that study is that in countries where the opposition from the throne, the opposition from the governing authorities, in countries where that opposition to the church was most harsh, the church that was born and reborn in the reformation of the church in that day was the most biblical. In countries where there was 
more cooperation with the governing authorities, the church became less biblical through the Reformation. And again, it speaks to the importance of proclaiming Christ as Lord and his word as the ultimate truth. This great war is going on all around us, even right now. There are strong spiritual forces opposed to what's being proclaimed from this pulpit and being taught in the classes here and being proclaimed in all true churches wherever they exist in this planet. And the world in which we live hates the truth, hates the Lord Jesus Christ, and hates the mission that he has given to those of us who have been entrusted with his word. Let me give you just a few final warnings in light of all of this. First of all, especially in a compromised vague, fuzzy culture like this one, you need to keep reminding yourself there are no neutral parties in this war. There are no Switzerlands in this war. Jesus Christ said, whoever is not with me is against me. And there is a great danger of people thinking that they can be neutral. They can kind of like Jesus, but not really follow Jesus. There is no neutrality. You're either with Christ or you're against him. And there is a danger of looking at our friends and neighbors and co-workers, the nice people in our lives, and saying, oh, they're neutral. Yeah, they're enemies of Christ out there, but those people are neutral. They don't really need the gospel. If you're not with Christ, you're against Christ. Either you're a loyal citizen of the kingdom of light or you're part of the kingdom of darkness. There is no middle ground. Second warning, don't fraternize with the enemy. And by that, I don't mean don't be friendly. The word fraternize doesn't mean that you can't be friendly with the enemy. We are called to love and serve our enemy, to be kind to them. Yes, to befriend them when, when we can. But to fraternize means to enter into a brotherly relation with. In other words, to be yoked with, to be entangled with the enemies in the world by adopting their values, by adopting their philosophy, by adopting their worldview, by adopting their lifestyle. We all need to take a serious stock of our own lives and say, where have we compromised with the enemy? Third warning, not everyone inside the church is a friend and not everyone who is outside the church is an enemy. Matter of fact, the most dangerous enemies are those who wear sheep's clothing. Those who claim to be Christians, those who claim to be in the church, especially those who claim to teach and, and preach the word of God, and yet they don't. They preach a different gospel, and they are seeking ultimately to lead people, from, lead people astray from within the body of believers. But on the other hand, there are also many who are outside the church currently who say they are not Christians, but yet are being called by the Spirit of God, are being wakened by the Holy Spirit, and are being drawn to Christ, and those people are the focus of our mission. We need to get the gospel to them. There are people all over this community, throughout your neighborhood, who, are, who have been enemies of Christ, but are being drawn to Christ, are being converted by the power of the Holy Spirit, are open to the teaching of the gospel, open to the truth. We need to get the word of God to those people. They desperately need to hear it. Understanding that the enemy will oppose us at every turn. 
And then lastly and finally, not a warning but a comfort. Have no fear of the enemy. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The victory is ours. We are just waiting for Christ to come and bring it to fulfillment. And so let me finish with one of my favorite passages in Scripture for your encouragement. This is from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.